So we are in Ruth chapter 3, consider, continuing our series through this short book in the Old Testament. And it's our practice here just to uh, go through Scripture book by book. And we were recently in 1 Thessalonians, and now we find ourselves in Ruth. And for those of you who may be curious, because Ruth isn't a, a long book, so we have to go somewhere else in a few weeks. I was thinking it would be really good to go to the Gospel of Mark. I think that would be a great thing for us as a church. First uh, Thessalonians was great because it gave us a, a picture of a healthy church and even a lot of specific instructions and examples on what a new church is. So that's helpful to have this, this specific uh, teaching for what the church is. But then Mark, it really provides an up-close look at Christ himself. And even as I just said, we want to be about exalting the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to be a people that is full of the knowledge of Christ and love for Christ. And so what better thing could we do than to go through a gospel? And so I trust we'll all be blessed by that. But let's, let's focus on Ruth today, Ruth chapter 3. And it, it's a shorter chapter than the previous one, so I thought it would be appropriate to just read, um, read the whole chapter before we dive into it. So Ruth chapter 3, and I'm reading from the Legacy Standard Bible, very similar translation to the New American Standard. Ruth 3, Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek a state of rest for you, that it may be well with you? And now, is not Boaz our kinsman, with whose young women you were? Behold, he is winnowing barley at the threshing floor tonight. So you shall wash yourself and anoint yourself and put on your best clothes, and you shall go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. Let it be that when he lies down, you shall know the place where he lies, and you shall go and uncover his feet and lie down. Then he will tell you what you shall do. She said to her, Ruth, all that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law had commanded her. And Boaz ate and drank, and his heart was merry, and he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And she came secretly and uncovered his feet and lay down. Then it happened in the middle of the night that the man was startled and bent forward. And behold, a woman was lying at his feet. And he said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your maidservant, so spread your wing over your maidservant, for you are a kinsman redeemer. Then he said, May you be blessed of Yahweh, my daughter. You have shown your last loving kindness to be better than the first by not going after young men, whether poor or rich. So now, my daughter, do not fear. All that you say I will do for you. For all my people within the gates of the city know that you are a woman of excellence. And now it is true, I am a kinsman redeemer. However, there is a kinsman redeemer closer than I. Stay this night, and it will be in the morning that if he will redeem you, good, let him redeem you. But if he does not desire to redeem you, then I will redeem you. But it, as Yahweh lives, lie down until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning and rose before one could recognize another. And he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. 
And he said, give me the cloak that is on you and hold it. So she held it and he measured six measures of barley and placed it on her. Then she went into the city. Then she came to her mother-in-law and she said, how did it go, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done for her. She said, these six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said, do not go to your mother-in-law empty. Then she said, sit then, my daughter, until you know how the matter falls into place. For the man will not remain quiet until he has finished the matter today. Very interesting chapter, wouldn't you agree? A very interesting plan that this mother-in-law Naomi has for her daughter-in-law. Uh, If we didn't know anything else about the context, our eyebrows would be raised. What what's going on here? And what why did God record this story for us? This story. Well, Ruth, as many of you remember, is a book about providence. So that's the the theology word, the theological word that we want to have in our minds as we study this book of Ruth. Providence. And providence is a word that Our ancestors used much more than we do. We tend to use words like fortunately or luck or things just happen this way by chance. But our ancestors used this word providence to describe the unfolding of events, didn't they? Providence refers to God's meticulous control of creation. Providence means that God is not just the one that built the world, and created life, but he's the one that is sovereignly guiding its unfolding. It's unfolding according to his plan, but also his active guidance. Behind every confusing situation, behind every tragedy or act of prosperity, every blessing or every hard situation, there is God's good hand silently and mysteriously guiding what's happening. Psalm 115 verse 3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. So God's purpose and his will, it's not thwarted by anyone. By anyone. He's not ever frustrated about how things are going. But as we study that doctrine and we think about that, we could, we could be led to a wrong conclusion about how this affects us. To some of us, when we talk about God's providence, we think this is like a freight train. God's providence is like this huge freight train barreling down the tracks. And it's going to go where it's going to go. And so what does that have to do with me? If I get in front of the, the freight train, I'm going to get run over, won't I? If I try to redirect it, I can't redirect it. There is just too much force behind that train or behind God's providence for me to possibly affect, contribute at all or participate at all. And so this chapter, it it would challenge that thinking. If if you are just learning about God's providence for the first time and you're tempted to think, well, this means that God is just going to do whatever he's going to do And I'm just this ant. I'm just this ant on the globe. And I really have no role in the unfolding of God's plan. This chapter will challenge that thinking. 
And a major theme in this chapter is the theme of initiative, right? The characters, all three characters, Boaz, Ruth, Naomi, they're all making decisions. They're all taking risks. They're all making plans, aren't they? And so God is caring for the people in this story, these ancient people, but he's doing so somehow through their free choices, isn't he? So what about me and God's providence? This text is going to show us three redemptive instruments in order to inspire you to participate in God's providence. So God just doesn't want you to know, he doesn't only want you to know that he's in control, but he actually wants you to be involved in his providence and the unfolding of his plan in the same way that these people were, these believers were long ago. So let's look at these three redemptive instruments that God used, because that's really what he's all about, isn't he? It's not just providence, but his redemptive providence uh, to redeem a word that is used several times in this passage and will be used many more times before we finish the book, refers to buying someone back. So to redeem something, it means to buy back. That's the most basic meaning of the term. It could refer to buying a piece of property back from someone and is often used that way. But but the more broad biblical way that that term is used that spans both the Old Testament and the New Testament is God's work of rescuing us from misery to buying us back from misery, from a barren life, from distress. And so we are going to see how God used three people to accomplish his redemptive providence in their lives. The first one we see is Naomi. You remember Naomi was the the main character. We've said that even though the book is titled Ruth. The perspective of the book is really written through Naomi's eyes. So you're seeing the unfolding of events through her eyes and the, the author is leading you to identify more with her than other, any of the other characters. And so what happened to Naomi? Well, she left with her husband and her two sons some time ago. They left Israel during a time of famine to sojourn, it says, in the land of Moab, uh, 30 to 50 miles away, where there was rain and where there were crops that they could, they could live off of. And so while they were living there, her husband dies inexplicably. And sometime after that, her two sons also die. Uh, after being married to to two women. But she is left completely alone. Uh, She is left, she has experienced perhaps the biggest tragedy any woman could experience. Your whole family dies. Your whole family dies. Not just one, everyone, all of your children, your husband within a short span of time. And she was bitter. She ended that first chapter bitter, Uh, questioning God. Uh, She wasn't able to see the connection between God's plan and this tragedy, and so she concluded, what else could she conclude but that God had turned on her? He was now punishing her. But then the author gently hinted at us at the end of chapter one, it was not, it's not, it wasn't what it appeared to be. Uh, Even as she was saying those words, Ruth, the greatest blessing in her life as we'll see, was standing right next to her, and the harvest was beginning to come up around her. 
the physical harvest uh, in Bethlehem. And then in chapter 2, we saw how God provided for Ruth, uh, the, the widow, uh, the daughter-in-law of Naomi, who chose to leave everything behind and follow her mother-in-law. She left her culture behind. She left her father behind, her mother behind. And she came and returned out of just sheer love and compassion for her mother, her mother-in-law. And how did God deal with her? Well, she was generously provided for. So she sacrificially loved her mother-in-law. And in return, God provided abundantly for her. And we saw there that, that when we take risks for God and when we even make sacrifices for God, that God will never let us be in, in that condition of complete and utter poverty. Uh, of course, we'll, we'll have wants in this life and we don't preach a prosperity gospel. We don't preach that, that God will repay you sevenfold financially for, for any dollar you give. No, we don't say that. But what we do say, based on this passage, is that God will generously provide for the people that sacrificially serve him. And so at the end of that chapter, Naomi, she started to emerge from her bitterness, didn't she? When Ruth came back from meeting Boaz, this generous man who owned all this land, who generously provided for her, Naomi came, came out of her shell a little bit. She came out of her mourning and bitterness a bit, didn't she? Perhaps God hadn't turned on her after all. Uh, perhaps it wasn't so dark after all. Perhaps there was still hope in the future. And so in chapter 3, we see that Naomi has come out of that depression enough that she is even now ready to make a plan. She has a plan now. She's going to be a redemptive instrument in the, in the life of Ruth. In the life of Ruth. So she is sitting there and she's moaning and groaning one day about her plight. Her husband is gone. No future. I guess we'll just live off scraps the rest of our life. But one day, she realizes what she has. One day she realizes Ruth is, is there with her. That God is providing for her through this young woman who's, who's committed herself to her. And her heart now starts to be moved and touched by Ruth's plight. Uh, Ruth has sacrificed everything for her. And Naomi begins to realize this and begins to think more about Ruth than herself. And so she sees this plight of this young widow, Ruth, and she is drawn to compassion. Uh, she wants to do something for her daughter-in-law. We don't have any indication that she's trying to manipulate her daughter-in-law, uh, like get her married to someone rich so that she can be provided for. The author is not telling us that. We may want to assume that, but the author doesn't want us to think of it that way. He wants us to think of Naomi as developing this plan, as suggesting this to Ruth, purely out of love for her, out of compassion for her. But it's a strange plan, isn't it? What's the plan? She says, and now is not Boaz our kinsman, a, re a relative of some sort? And you've been with him and his, his servants, haven't you? Uh, behold, tonight he is winnowing barley at the threshing floor. In that culture, they would process what they harvested the same way we do today. I'm not familiar with the modern practices, but back then, 
uh, when you harvested barley, you'd bring it to a, f- a threshing floor because the seeds would have uh, an inedible husk around it, and you would want to separate that from the grain. And so they would build this uh, circular floor some, somewhere close to their fields called a threshing floor. And the point of the threshing floor was that you'd, you'd pummel, you'd pound or grind the grain in some way with an animal or, or by hand. Uh, so you would separate the wheat from the chaff. And then winnowing referred to uh, once you threshed it, you would throw it up into the air and let the wind blow the chaff away. So why is, why is Boaz there at night? Well, most people think it's because there was a breeze coming off the sea, the Mediterranean Sea, and it was a, a stronger breeze in the evening. And so he, it's not just that he liked doing this at nighttime. It was a regular practice. Uh, but still, we want to avoid speculating uh, too much about this because honestly, we don't, we don't know all of the cultural practices during the time. But just so you know, that's what is happening here. Boaz, he's busy harvesting and now he's processing what he has harvested. Uh, he's a busy man. And so if, if Ruth need, wants to have a private conversation with him, uh, she'll need to put some thought into that. And Naomi has this idea. Here's one way you could have a delicate conversation with this man about your future together. He'll be busy tonight doing this, uh, winnowing barley at the threshing floor. And so now wash yourself and anoint yourself, put on your best clothes, and go down to the threshing floor. So, so far, so good. We would say, yeah, just go down and talk to him. But she doesn't say that, does she? She says, go down to the threshing floor, but do it secretly. <laughs> Wait until he is, he is eaten and drunk and lied down, and then come and uncover his feet and lie down next to him? Uh, that's a, a strange plan, isn't it? Uh, and eating and drinking, maybe she's thinking Boaz will be, wait till he's drunk, and then he'll be open to your manipulative, you know, seductive tactics. I mean, if, we, if we're reading this, if we respect the author of Ruth, we won't conclude that, will we? Because how has the author portrayed Ruth and Boaz up to this point as uh, these salacious, uh, promiscuous, ungodly, wicked people? No. These are two people of extraordinary integrity. Uh, there's no hint of immorality in, in this narrative at all. And so we, we just have to conclude that uh, this was Ruth's best shot at having a delicate conversation with this man during this season when he was so busy. Uh, Naomi was also likely trying to uh, take some pressure off of both Boaz and Ruth. I mean, just imagine that, having a marriage proposal conversation here. You know, trying to talk about that here, people would overhear you, even if you were to the side of the, of the room. Uh, you would want some privacy. And so here's the plan. Go and, and notice where he lies down. Uncover his feet, likely, so that he will eventually wake up. Uh, it might have been cold, sleeping out uh, at the, the threshing floor. And he, he was likely sleeping there to protect his grain. Uh, again, a, we conclude it was a normal thing to do, to guard what you were harvesting and to save time so you could get up and, and continue the next day. So it's, it seems like a strange plan. Uh, but it's really just a plan to ensure that Ruth and Boaz can have a, a frank conversation about this. And what does Ruth say? She says, all that you say, 
I will do. Interesting. Well, how was Naomi being involved in God's providence, especially toward Ruth as it related to Ruth? If you just flip one page over to Ruth chapter 1 verse 9, just look at that verse. Uh, When Naomi was originally talking to Ruth and her other daughter-in-law, Orpah, who, who returned to Moab, she stayed back, Uh, She prayed this blessing on them, didn't she? She said, may Yahweh grant that you may find rest. So the same word that we find in chapter 3, verse 1. Shall I not seek a state of rest for you? So her prayer back in chapter 1 was, may the Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. And so we know based on that prayer that she was thinking, when she thought of rest, she was thinking of domestic rest, the security of, Uh, the security and the comfort that uh, a woman has naturally being in the home of a man and being joined to a godly man in marriage. But here we see, how did, how was God answering that prayer? Was God answering that prayer that she prayed back in chapter one? He's starting to, isn't he? But, but how is he working? How is God working? to fulfill that prayer, and to care for Ruth. Well, the same person that prayed for Ruth ends up being the same person that God's using to answer that prayer. Interesting. Have you ever had that experience? If you haven't, you will soon, where you are praying for someone, but then it dawns on you one day, huh, I could actually answer my own prayer. I could actually be God's answer to my own prayer for this person. And so we see that a bitter old woman has now become a redemptive instrument in God's hand. But it is not just Naomi who's participating in God's providence. We also see Ruth doing the same thing. Look at verse 5. She says, all that you say I will do. So immediately just submits to this plan. And she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law had commanded her. Boaz ate and drank, and his heart was merry, and he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And she came secretly and uncovered his feet and lay down. And so Ruth is a woman of great humility. Don't we see that? That, that God is using Ruth to care for Naomi in return. So from Naomi's perspective... She's trying to seek rest for Ruth. She's not thinking of herself. But this ends up being, at the same time, God's way of caring for Naomi. Why? Well, to understand that, we need to be reminded of this this idea of redemption in the Jewish culture. And it was even a law that God had commanded that extended relatives and brothers were responsible to, to care for, to step in and care for vulnerable people in their families. And so when a lady died, a woman's husband died, and she had no children especially, uh, no other men in her immediate family, that a brother or a near relative must step in and marry her if he was able to, and actually raise up a child, father a child through that woman that would take the name of her original husband. And so in that way that this woman would be redeemed 
from being uh, wiped out of Israel's genealogies. And also the land inheritance in her family would remain in her husband's line. And so Ruth and Naomi are related in that way, and Boaz is, is their relative. And so what does Boaz say to Ruth? Uh, he says that your loving kindness is better than the first. So from his interpretation of Ruth's marriage proposal is not, oh, you just want to marry a rich husband. I get it. I, get, I see what this is. No, he, sa- he immediately recognizes, I know that you're doing this for Naomi. I know that you're doing this for her. And so God is using Ruth to care for Naomi. And notice a few character traits of Ruth that really come out and shine in this narrative. And so we can ask, what kind of person does God use in his providence? Uh, What kind of person does God delight to use and to work with to fulfill his plan? Well, it's this kind of person that we see embodied in Ruth. Uh, First, look at her humility. So we'll look at three character qualities that she has here. The first is her humility, uh, her extraordinary humility. Notice how she submits to Naomi's plan, to her mother-in-law's plan. Uh, We often kick against the suggestions of our elders, don't we? Uh, Pride is is often seen in that. When an older person counsels a younger person or, or gives a suggestion, there's all these excuses or, no, I don't want, that's not a good idea, mom. I'm not going to do that, right? But she just immediately submits to her. All that you say, I will do. She also calls herself a maidservant to Boaz. A maidservant. This word maidservant is, is actually the language of slavery or servanthood, bound servanthood. So there are two types of female servants in the Old Testament. And there's two words. The first word Ruth used in chapter 2, verse 13, where she called herself Boaz's servant woman. And in there, that word just means a woman who would be working for, for a, a master or a man. And so Boaz had young women helping with the harvest. They were probably binding the, the sheaves together. And so Ruth uh, was thanking him back in chapter 2 for treating, for treating her like an employee, even though she wasn't one, that she enjoyed all the same impri- privileges as an employee. Uh, but in, in chapter 3, she uses a different word that is more intimate. And so we may be uncomfortable with this, but back then uh, when there was a female servant, uh, sometimes the, the owner, and they, sometimes people would be bound by, by slavery to a male master. Uh, sometimes the master would marry one of his servants, his female servants. And so uh, there are a number of examples of this in the Old Testament. And so it's a very humble term, but it, it, it implies a female servant that's eligible for marriage. And so how does Ruth propose marriage to Boaz? How could she have proposed marriage to Boaz? Well, you're in my family, and you know this, if you don't do this, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let everyone know, make sure everyone knows about it, or in other words, manipulate him. She could have tried to seduce him. Again, 
thousands of examples, probably just in the Bible, if not just from modern, uh, the news stories of our modern culture. Incredibly rampant. But how does she address him? How do we see her humility? She calls herself his, his servant. How, how many women do you know that would ever talk to a man like this? So again, we are not in the same culture. Granted, okay? We don't have uh, female servants in that sense in a lot of ways, but just a lot of humility. She is appealing to him and his good graces purely, isn't she? Not trying to manipulate him at all. She also gives him an allusion to one of his prayers that he prayed for her. She says, spread your wing over your maidservant. And you may, you may even have in your translation a word like skirt or the hem of your robe. Uh, it's actually the same word as wing. And remember, Boaz prayed a prayer for Ruth. In chapter 2, verse 12, he said, May Yahweh fully repay your work, and may your wages be full from Yahweh, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. And so now again, we see someone praying a prayer for another person, and then Ruth is hinting at him, you prayed this for me, well, you can be the answer to your own prayer. Couldn't he? She prayed... She asked him, spread your wing over your maidservant. Uh, this was a, a normal way to refer to marriage. So it's a metaphor, okay? When a man would spread his garment or his, his, the wing of his garment over a woman, that picture or metaphor it was an example of marriage. Uh, it was a, a picture of marriage, the protection and the intimacy a woman would enjoy in the marriage relationship. And so that's all that means. And she says, you are a kinsman redeemer. Again, not just proposing to a wealthy man, but someone that is in her extended family who does have some obligation to care for her. And so we see that Ruth was a woman of extraordinary humility. We also see that she was extremely loyal. Uh, Boaz recognizes what she's doing as an act of loving kindness. That's the word he uses, or steadfast love. And we've defined that word before, loving kindness, as a total commitment to someone that you make based out of a deep love for them. That's that word loving kindness. A little different than love. Love in our culture just means a feeling we have for someone. And it could evaporate tomorrow for all we know. If you get on my bad side, that love may poof, disappear. But when this word is used, loving kindness, it refers to a deep love that results in a lasting and permanent commitment. And just seeing another connection within the book, we remember that Ruth had made this vow, didn't she, to Naomi in chapter 1. Uh, verse 16, she said, Don't press me to forsake you in turning back from following you, for where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. So she swore that oath to Naomi. Remember that? She swore this oath to remain loyal to Naomi. That's pretty remarkable, isn't it? 
What decision in a young woman's life is more sacred than who she marries? Is there anything more sacred to a young lady than the decision, who am I going to marry? No one can tell me who to marry. I'm going to make that decision based on, not common sense, romantic infatuation will be my standard. And if that romantic infatuation is strong enough, that meets the criteria for who I marry, doesn't it? How did Ruth think about marriage? She put marriage on the altar, didn't she? She didn't see see it as something that was purely just for her personal fulfillment. What does Boaz say? He says, your loving kindness, this is what you're doing now, is even greater than what you did by leaving your whole family. How? Well, she had refused to go after young, young men. We could also translate that men in their prime. She, her heart could have been all a flutter for some dreamy guy in Bethlehem, her, her age or younger. She probably could have found a wealthy young man as well. Uh, We're not told of her appearance at all, but we are told of her character and of her reputation. And I would guess that she could have easily found uh, a man in his prime, a man that might have even been more attractive than Boaz. And so she considered marriage as something to be offered up to God as an act of worship and even as a way to serve someone else. Isn't that amazing? Do you think of marriage that way? Do you think of marriage as a way to worship God and as a way and a a context for you to be a servant? Or is marriage just this, this Disney dream that you have? All of our lives need to be on the altar, so to speak, offered up to God in worship. And Ruth's commitment to, to Naomi even touched her thoughts about marriage and who she was willing to marry. But also notice her integrity. He calls her, he, he agrees, he says, I will do all this for you. Why? For all the, my people within the gates of the city know that you are a woman of excellence. The same word the author used to describe Boaz in chapter 2. So they're a perfect match. Remember that excellence, this word means strength. It refers to someone that has a strong character, uh, a person of integrity, of extraordinary integrity. And the whole village knew that Ruth had this character, that she was a woman of integrity. And so Boaz doesn't say, just say, well, sure, you're in need and I'll do this. He, he wouldn't marry someone that did not have integrity. Uh, But he recognized that this was truly a worthy woman to take as a wife. Uh, She was a woman of integrity. It's obvious that there's no sexual immorality happening here. There's actually every indication of the opposite. Notice that Boaz speaks of the Lord. He takes the name of the Lord on his lips multiple times in this midnight conversation with this young lady who would soon be his wife. And his motivation 
for agreeing to her proposal is based on God's character and God's law, isn't it? So we see that at the heart of this relationship, these people that were, we could say, courting at this point, for lack of a better word, at the very center of their conversation and their relationship, their flowering relationship, was God and God's law, wasn't it? God and God's law was at the center of their relationships. And this is an important point, uh, especially for the young ladies or young men here who are thinking about marriage, where that's, that's something on your mind. You're thinking about that. A very easy question to ask yourself to help you picking a, a future spouse would be, as you get to know this young man or this young woman, you can ask, is, is God, does God seem to be at the center of this man or this woman's life? Our conversations, and even as we're getting to know each other, is God at the center of this? And if, it, if he is, then that is a green light, isn't it? It's a green light, but if it's, a, if it's not, it's a red light. And so I will just echo what I've heard from many godly men speak about that, finding a spouse, if you don't see a real love and devotion to Christ in, an, in another young person you're thinking about marrying, dump him or her. It's just that simple. It's just that simple. Uh, marriage is an act of worship to God. And even though Boaz wanted to be compassionate and to care for these two widows, that was still an issue for him, uh, her integrity. But she had a spotless reputation in the community. And so he says, of course, I will do this for you. You would be a blessing to any man to marry. So Ruth was a humble, loyal woman of great integrity. She was a nobody in her day. I mean, up to this point, she was a nobody. She was some Moabite lady who came out of nowhere to Bethlehem, uh, an obscure village in Israel. But this is the path to greatness, especially for a young woman. The path to greatness is not pride. It's not self-promotion. It's not even beauty. It's humility, loyalty, and integrity. And just look how the Holy Spirit has exalted this woman that lived so long ago. There's 66 books in the Bible. This obscure lady has one of those books named after her. None of us can say that. So you may think, well, the path of humility, that is just, I'll be ground to a pulp underneath the feet of those who take advantage of me. It's the opposite. Even we read that in, in Luke, do you remember earlier? Well, that he who humbles himself will be exalted. So the Holy Spirit is exalting this, this woman for us and her commendable character qualities for us to uh, to pursue and to adopt into our lives, humility, loyalty, and integrity. But finally notice Boaz himself. Uh, Naomi and Ruth are participating in God's secret providence and how he is redeeming uh, these widows from their, from their plight. But he's also using Boaz in this. And again, he's answering his own prayer, a theme that is working itself out in each of the characters. This man is answering his own prayer. 
Uh, he's saying, may you be blessed of Yahweh, my daughter. You have shown your last loving kindness to be better than the first. And so he is becoming the physical expression of God's wing, metaphorical wing, being spread over these two widows. He prayed that God would care for Ruth and Naomi. And God answered that prayer, but how did he do it? It was through a real person, a flesh and blood person, stepping in and taking initiative and accepting responsibility for their care. But there's one small problem, isn't there? Uh, There's one small problem. He says, however, verse 12, there is a kinsman redeemer closer than I. Stay this night and it will be in the morning that he will, if he will redeem you, good, let him redeem you. But if he does not desire to redeem you, then I will redeem you as Yahweh lives. Lie down until morning. So he makes his own oath. He's just like Ruth. He swears an oath of loyalty by the name of God to do this thing, to make sure that they are redeemed. To make sure they are redeemed. And then he sends back Ruth to Naomi without empty hands. See that in verse 17? He said, do not go to your mother-in-law empty. Empty. What was it again that Naomi said when she came back from Moab? Do you remember? She said, I went out full. The end of chapter 1, I went out full, but Yahweh, the Lord, has caused me to return empty. So the narrator is hinting at us again. He's saying, she's not empty. Boaz is actually God's channel of bringing fullness back into the life of Naomi. And she says, sit down and wait, and let's see how the matter falls out, or how it falls into place. Another allusion to God's providence. The word fall, that verb, it always relates to the lot. So the the Hebrews had dice. They had the equivalent of dice. And they would cast the dice. And they even did that to divide up the land. And they knew that God was even behind and guiding the rolling of the dice. And they would cast lots uh, when they needed to make decisions. A practice that we are not encouraged to keep doing, okay, in the New Testament era. But which they did and God actually told them to do that. And so how the matter falls, again, alluding to God's providential control and secret involvement in all of these events. Okay, well, we need to step back and ask the question, as we try to do every, every week, what is, how does this relate to me? We're, really, we're reading about people that lived over 3,000 years ago in a very different culture. Some of us maybe even ha- have struggled to to relate to what's happening because they're winnowing grain and there's, uh, there's people, there's robes and there's all these practices and uh, kinsman redeemer uh, and the Israelite culture and the law of Moses. Well, let's just take a step back and see what, what is going on here at the highest level. Well, these three people, especially these two widows, are experiencing a form of redemption. So when we speak of God's providence, it's not just that he is in control of everything, but he's actually doing something specific. He has a goal, in other words. He's not just a puppet master arbitrarily guiding the unfolding of history. He's actually guiding history to unfold in a certain way to accomplish a certain purpose, which is redemption. 
And so I want to leave you with two lessons that I think summarize the teaching of this chapter, what we learn by way of example through the lives of these three people. The first would be that God's providence involves you. So the freight train picture of God's providence barreling down the tracks, running over anyone that gets in front of it, is inaccurate. God is going to work and accomplish his will and his purpose in this world through you. Through you. Uh, Your decisions, your godly ambitions, who you choose to marry, the, the children you have and how you teach them, who your neighbors are and what you say to them, of the church you're a part of and and what kind of ministries it has. All of these things God will be using to accomplish his purpose. And so that, that doesn't let us just sleep in all day, does it? We, we need to get out of bed and we want to be involved in what God is doing in the world. But second, we need to know what, what is he doing? What is God doing? As he sits on his throne and looks at the world, what does he feel? And what does he want to happen? What is he seeking? We want to be working with him, but we need to know what is he doing? What's the job? What's the goal? What's the end state that he desires? Well, God's providence is all about redemption. It's all about redemption. When God looks at the world, what he wants most of all to occur in the world is redemption. That word is to rescue people from misery. He looked at these two obscure ladies so long ago, and he was moved to compassion for them. God actually experienced real compassion for these people who had just lost their husbands and this woman who had just lost her children. And so what did he do about that? He secretly worked things in such a way that Boaz and Ruth freely chose to come alongside Naomi to care for her and to, re- and to redeem her from a barren old age. And so God, we, we learn through that, that in God's character, he is a redeemer. And that's the title of the sermon, God the Redeemer. That when we see how he's working in the lives of everyday people in mysterious ways, we see that he's primarily seeking redemption. Before Naomi began to pity Ruth, God pitied Ruth. Uh, Before Ruth began to pity Naomi, God took pity on Naomi. And before Boaz had even met these widows, God was already full of compassion for them and guiding Boaz through his decisions to help them. And so that's what we learn about God's character. Maybe in miniature, we could say this is a mini story of redemption. It's not the great cosmic story of redemption, uh, you know, of Christ suffering on the cross to pay for our sin. That's the great story of redemption. But we see here in miniature, God doing this, even at the, the individual level with these temporal concerns in these three people. And so when we, we think of God and what we learn about God through this story, we ask if the creator could, could look at this world through human eyes and, and live and walk around in this world, what would he do? What would he do? Uh, we, we can actually answer that question because Christ is the son of God who came into the world, 
who actually did look at the world through human eyes. Christ, he's, he's the Son of God. And so when Jesus Christ was looking at the world, it wasn't just a man. It wasn't just a good man or a good teacher. It was God. It was the person that created the world looking at his own creation in its fallen state. And, and what did he do? All over the Gospels, and we'll even read this in Mark when we get into it, everywhere tell us that Christ was constantly moved to compassion because of the misery around him. That when he, he came into the world, what did he see? He didn't see paradise. He didn't see the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve in perfect harmony with all the animals. What did he saw? He saw people that were demon-possessed. He saw people that were blind. He saw a woman walking by the funeral casket of her son, wailing over the death of her only son. And he was moved to compassion for that. He felt compassion for the misery around him. And so what did he do about that? What, what did God do about the misery in the world? Well, the scripture says that he redeemed the world. It uses that same word, redemption that we find in the book of Ruth. In Galatians 3, it says, Christ redeemed us, he bought us back from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. And so when the creator became a man and looked at the world, and he met people that were suffering, he not only felt compassion, but how did he spend his life? How did he choose to spend that brief life that he had, only living 30 and, and a few years in this world. How did he spend his life? He spent his life preaching the gospel and trying to reconcile people to God, and then he offered up his life as a substitutionary sacrifice to pay the penalty of our sin. So that's what God is all about. So you should not be in any confusion or any fog about what God is trying to accomplish in the world. And so we see how that worked out in Christ, not only in Ruth through these characters, but God himself becoming a man and his work of redemption through Christ, which brings us to us. And the, the question that we need to ask is, is all this really true? So this, this chapter is all about people looking at others and being moved to pity and compassion for them and stepping into their lives to redeem them from misery, uh, do we experience the same thing? Who are the people in your life that you see every day uh, that are in misery? Of course, people that are unbelievers, but maybe even temporary forms of suffering. Uh, people without families. People that may have certain diseases or may be sick. Uh, we can be practical instruments of redemption on a small miniature scale, even in our acts of mercy with one another. But also, at the greatest level, what is the greatest need of the people around us? What's the greatest need? The greatest need is that if they don't know Christ, they are going to die in their sin. And they are going to plunge into darkness and they were going to suffer for eternity in hell. That's true. I mean, I know Ruth chapter 3 is not about hell. It's not about necessarily even the gospel proper itself, but it is leading us there. We're connecting to that through God's character. And that's why that's our commission as a church, 
is we want to be all about that. We want to be all about experiencing pity for sinners and then going to sinners with the gospel and inviting them to join and to be blessed by God's work of redemption through Christ. So the question is that I'll leave you with today is how can I join God? How can I join God even on small practical levels in caring for people in my family and their various hardships? How can I be merciful and compassionate and even demonstrate these types of small acts of redemption uh, every day? But then also, how can I be involved in God's commission, God's commission of redemption in this age, the age of the church? And so I trust that that will be in your mind as we go from here. Uh, We are all gifted in different ways, and this is not necessarily an appeal to do any specific thing. It's just an appeal to, to feel the same way God feels when he looks at the world. And if your heart is in the right place, it's just it's relatively easy to get, get involved and get going, isn't it? Our God, we thank you for your mercy and your uh, compassion that you have lavished on us through Christ. We thank you that you took pity on us, uh, that you have redeemed us from the curse of the law and even become a curse through, for us through the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we pray that we may be like these saints that we read about in Ruth, uh, Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz, all in different ways. We pray that uh, we would be similar types of people, uh, that we would not get stuck in wallowing in our, in our own trials, in our own dreams and goals. Uh, help us to notice those around us that are in misery, Uh, Help us to be involved in your work, in your providence, your unfolding providence in this world, especially through the ministry of redemption. Uh, We pray that you would uh, bless every person here, uh, that no person here would be a stranger to you, uh, that all would know you through your Son, no lasting peace, lasting joy, and have an assurance of salvation. Uh, We pray that you would strengthen us and enable us to serve you with zeal and with joy this week. Uh, May we be faithful in our respective areas of employment, in our homes, uh, according to our responsibilities and the ways you've gifted us and our stewardship. Uh, We pray all this in the name of Christ and for his sake. Amen.